Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy The Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. You also get access to ad-free versions of the podcast. We recently released a new bonus episode on the HBO Max film Judas and the Black Messiah, and we're gritting our teeth and gearing up to discuss, yes, the Zack Snyder cut of Justice League. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here with Keith Phipps and Genevieve Kotsky. Our co-host Scott Tobias is currently out on the road because he heard a rumor that all the other Scots of the world have been driven into the ocean. In his place this week, due to the pairing we have in mind, we're calling in a special guest, John Marr, cultural writer extraordinaire, a writer and editor at Publishers Weekly, the co-founder of the late lamented website The Dot in the Line, and one of the biggest animation fans we know. Welcome to the show, John. Thrilled to have made my way through the clock to all of you. Thanks for having me here. <laughs> uh, just a little preview for you there. American movie theaters are in even more of a state of flux right now than they have been since the beginning of the pandemic. Some states are reopening and trying to return to business as usual, while some theaters are closing down permanently. For now, we're still sticking to quarantainment, pairing films you can find on VOD, cable television, or streaming services. This week, we're focusing on a pair of fantasy creatures that are the absolute last of their kind in the entire world. Well, actually... Okay, you know we all hate that phrase, Keith. Yeah, but it's kind of significant here. Neither of the fantasy animals in this week's pairing are actually the last of their kind. Okay, next you're going to pull a Simpsons on me and say the never-ending story was disappointed because it eventually ended. I mean, I'll admit, the filmmakers were setting some pretty unrealistic expectations there. Keith's right. Uh, it's fairly typical for movies with the last in their title to cheat on the deal. I mean, the last Starfighter? Packed with Starfighters. Yeah, Star Wars Episode Eight: The Last Jedi, that was a big tease. There are clearly way more Jedi coming. Uh, the Last Action Hero, totally an accurate description given the number of action movies made since then. X-Men The Last Stand, plenty of people have made plenty of subsequent stands. The Last Waltz, people are still waltzing to this day. And what about The Last Wave, or The Last Seduction, or Last Tango in Paris? Even The Last Airbender turned out to be a fake-out. Don't forget The Last Samurai either. And didn't the title of this podcast come from the 1971 movie The Last Picture Show? And aren't we still watching picture shows? Like, pretty regularly? Okay, okay, I get it. Can that be the last movie title in this list? So apparently Hollywood likes the drama of calling something the last of its kind, but doesn't like cutting off the possibility of sequels. Still, both of the title characters in the movies we're talking about today think they're the last of their kind, which means they have to go on dangerous quests to fix that problem. Keith, you want to give us the rundown? At last, 1982's The Last Unicorn was the last of a set of animated features produced by the New York City-based animation company Rankin Bass, but actually animated in Japan, in the same visual style the company had used earlier for 1977's The Hobbit and 1980's Return of the King, as well as its other 1982 TV feature, Flight of Dragons. Based on a best-selling novel by Peter S. Beagle, who also wrote the screenplay, The Last Unicorn follows a unicorn, erratic magician Schmendrick, and aging bandit Molly Grew on a quest to rescue the world's unicorns from a selfish king and a fiery monster. 
That dynamic reminded us of the new Disney feature Raya and the Last Dragon, another fantasy quest about what seems to be the sole survivor of an ancient species on the road to save her people from a mysterious force of nature with the help of a ragtime group of human allies. The voices and intentions of these films are radically different, but they both use mythological creatures in similar ways to get at some of the truths of being human. So this week, we'll look back to an older age of hand-drawn cell animation with The Last Unicorn, and next week, we'll see how it compares with Disney's up-to-the-moment CGI outing, Raya and the Last Dragon. Please join us. Hey, it, it feels pretty good to get in the last word. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. No, is if you've seen other unicorns like me somewhere in the world. You can find the others if you are brave. They passed down all the roads long ago, and the Red Bull ran close behind them and covered their footprints. Oh, I could never leave this forest. But I must know if I am the only unicorn left in the world. The classic tale oh. is now a classic animated adventure. Featuring the voices of Mia Farrow. The, the, the spell was wrong, but there was true magic in it. Alan Arkin. My dear, you deserve the services of a great wizard, but I'm afraid you'll have to be glad of the aid of a second-rate pickpocket. Jeff Bridges. That is exactly what heroes are for. It's you and me, Moth. Hand to hand to hand to hand. Robert Klein. Christopher Lee. I am King Haggard. And the music of America. It's the last unicorn. Fantasy author Peter Beagle has a pretty charming story he tells about how he came to write The Last Unicorn. He was 23 when he started the novel, on a cabin trip with a painter friend named Phil Seganek. Quote, he was painting every day and coming back with more oil on the canvas, and I started The Last Unicorn because I had to show him that I was working too. I had to have pages if he was going to come home with this landscape with more paint on it. And as far as I know, I just started it then to have something to show Phil, unquote. Many years later, Beagle says, he talked to Phil about how that competitive urge was the only thing that kept him going on The Last Unicorn. And Phil said, quote, I hated that damned landscape. I would have quit in a week, but you were back at the cabin writing this book. It took Beagle years to finish The Last Unicorn, during a period where he was raising three kids and writing for magazines to make ends meet. Quote, I wasn't sure who I was or what I was doing, he says. I didn't even think of myself as a fantasy writer. I just wrote what I liked to read. It comes down to that for all of us. But the book came to be held as a classic, and there was interest in adapting it for the screen right away. Beagle says some of the first interest came from the producers of the Peanuts TV specials, but that one of their wives told him at a party, possibly fueled by wine, as he puts it, don't let us do it. We aren't good enough. In fact, when his business manager sold the rights to Rankin-Bass, Beagle was appalled. He thought they weren't good enough either. He was hoping, believe it or not, to have the movie made by Hanna-Barbera. But The Last Unicorn has become a cult classic, while at the same time going through a long and messy life as an animated feature. According to a published conversation between Beagle and his later business manager, Connor Cochran, there's a long and sordid history there, by the way, that would take a full hour of podcasting to delve into all on its own. The Last Unicorn did incredibly well in theatrical release, opening in just a few hundred theaters, but earning at a higher per theater rate than films like E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Unfortunately, the distributor went bankrupt while the movie was still in theaters, and the film disappeared for years. 
The rights were sold and resold. The movie kept turning up on cheap DVDs and then disappearing again. And Beagle famously didn't get any form of payment for its success. That's a bit of a tragedy for a movie that's actively trying to match the lyricism of his text with equally lyrical visuals, including long travel montages where the titular Last Unicorn, voiced by Mira Farrow, goes through a long series of seasons and landscapes as she wanders the world looking for her missing people after overhearing two humans talk about how all the other unicorns are gone. The Last Unicorn has some rushed transitions, some missing elements, and the repeated frame shortcuts is familiar to so many hand-drawn animated features. But directors Jules Bass and Arthur Rankin Jr. really try to let the environment and the melancholy set in. The actual animation was handled in Japan by a company called Topcraft, which later animated Hayao Miyazaki's 1984 feature, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. That studio went bankrupt and dissolved in 1985, with some of its key players joining Miyazaki at his newly formed Studio Ghibli, and others forming a new company, Pacific Animation Corporation, which continued working with Rankin-Bass on the TV series Thundercats and Silverhawks. A lot of the same tricks of painted depth and rich coloring that went into Last Unicorn can be seen again in Nausicaa in particular, and even in Thundercats, which occasionally recycled some of the designs and aesthetics from the earlier Rankin-Bass projects. The company cut corners where it could by keeping some elements from film to film and then on to TV. The Last Unicorn feels like its most expensive and committed outing, with actual movie stars Pharaoh, Alan Arkin, Angela Lansbury, Jeff Bridges, and Christopher Lee providing the main characters' voices, and a soundtrack written and composed by songwriter Jimmy Webb and performed by the rock band America. It isn't exactly accurate to say The Last Unicorn is one of a kind, since it's more like one of a batch of movies directed by the same people, animated at the same studio, and exploring fantasy themes. But in spite of its humble beginnings as a bit of a spite project, and its almost diversion into Hanna-Barbera land, it still stands out as unique in its very specific and peculiar voice, its extremely wry humor, and its epic fantasy scope. It also stands out as the last theatrical feature film Rankin Bass ever produced. While the movie's Last Unicorn does end up finding others of her kind, this movie turned out to be the end of the line in one sense, seemingly the last of its kind in an era of Disney imitators and kid-aimed films that had very little room for something that's dark, idiosyncratic, weird, and in its own strange way, personal. Let me go. And let her go. I cannot see her caged. She is real, like me. We are two sides of the same magic. Let her go. I quit show business first. Do you think I don't know what the true witchery is just because I do what I do? There's not a witch in the world hasn't laughed at Mummy Fortuna and our homemade horrors. But there's not one of them who would have dared. The harpy and me, we are not for you. Who are you for, then? Do you really think those fools knew you without any help from me? <laughs> no, I had to give you a horn they could see. <laughs> Normally, we, we want to kick off with our guest. But uh, in this case, Genevieve, this is this was your first time seeing Last Unicorn. And I it am sure was. so curious how this movie plays <laughs> for somebody who didn't grow up with it. You know, who it doesn't have it as like part of their childhood panoply. Yeah, my childhood unicorn panoply is uh, centered on a different film, which I will talk about in your next picture <laughs> show uh, ne ne next week. But um, yeah, uh, The Last Unicorn really wasn't on my radar at 
all until I think probably I was in my early 20s. Um, I, I was working on like a school publication and we did like a feature on the, God, that was probably like the 2007 DVD release. Like it was just starting to like finally make its way to uh, home video after being kind of really impossible to find a decent uh, version of for a long time, at least as I understood it. So I wasn't really even aware of it until that, until later in my life. And it just, I never got around to it. I'm sorry to say, Tasha. And I, um, I feel like I associate this movie mostly with you these days because I know you're a big fan of, of, of the novel and an admirer of the, of the film as well. So I was excited to like, you know, finally fill this, this hole in, in my, in my animation knowledge and in my knowledge of movies that Tasha likes. But, I think like this is probably not the ideal way <laughs> to watch this movie for the first time. That is uh, right after watching Raya and the Last Dragon, which is a, a very different film, as, as, as you have already noted, and is kind of capturing a much different energy. So you kind of have to like watching the two films back to back, you really have to like change your viewer metabolism, I think, before uh, going into the Last Dragon and I, I, I or into the Last Unicorn. And I just I don't think I adequately uh, <laughs> acclimated myself. But but like I could definitely see why this is like a cult beloved film. I can see what makes it unusual and memorable. And the animation is while not my favorite, particularly the actual like animation part of it. <laughs> like I like I really like the character designs of Rankin Bass and uh the you know the scenery, the landscapes here are, are pretty gorgeous, but the actual like animation quality has this like kind of stilted weightless quality that I just kind of have a hard time vibing with, but can also recognize that as, you know, a, a certain charm. But, you know, I think where I just kept getting stuck with the last unicorn is just like its storytelling is a little stilted. You know, there's uh, some some weird transitions. There's some moments that just kind of make you go like, "Huh?" If you're <laughs> not prepared for them, and the sort of like the message or the themes of the film, I don't think like present themselves especially loudly. Again, compared to Ryan the Last Dragon, which is just like screaming in your face the whole time like what the big ideas here are i think the the last unicorn requires a little more interpretation on the the part of the viewer um and you know that that can be hard to pull off in a, in a first viewing so i feel like this is a movie that i will revisit in you know five or ten years and be like i think i underestimated that the, the first time but uh you know here i am perhaps underestimating it the first time I don't know that you are. I mean, this film is a big part of my childhood. I've got the world's biggest soft spot for it. But this is the first time I've revisited it in a very long time. And just compared to today's animated films, I guess what I can say for it is, boy, it sure did look great for 1982. <laughs> but John, you're in a similar place where you hadn't you'd seen this movie earlier in life, but you hadn't revisited it in a long time. How does it play for you today? I had some similar reactions to Genevieve's in that I found the pacing of the film to be wonky at best. No, that's not <laughs> fair. I found the pacing of the film to be quirky at best uh, and <laughs> slapdash at worst. And I think that's in some ways a trademark of how Hollywood tells stories outside of Disney has changed. And I think especially in animated films. And that could be maybe an interesting point for later in the conversation. But I do, having rewatched this, you know, like yesterday, and having rewatched, for instance, The Secret of Nim a few months ago, which is another dark fantasy movie mm -hmm. adapted from a 
borderline middle grade YA novel. I mean, those distinctions didn't really exist in 1982. So, but in our world, you know, in 2020, 2021, we would call that a, you know, call them YA novels. Both very dark films, both very mystical, magical. I would say that of the two, it's fairly clear to me that The Secret of Nim holds up better. But at the same time, I think my perspective is colored by my own experiences, and my own experiences with the films of Don Bluth are, uh, let's say, more fond than my experiences <laughs> with the films of Rankin-Bass, which, frankly, just do not have the same level of artistry, simply because Rankin and Bass were not principally artists. They were not the same level of animator with the same attention of they're not Don Bluth. You're not gonna, and they're not the kind of people who make films for Disney either. So I think part of it is, you know, you're talking about two filmmakers who come originally from a live action tradition, who effectively outsourced all of their labor for decades to Japan in order to get the art done. So it's not terribly surprising to me that the craft of the animation is not something that they, as producers and directors, focused on. At the same time, I agree with Genevieve, while the character animation is kind of shaky, the character design is fantastic. Really beautiful, traditional, lush sorts of fantasy designs that, you know, in terms of color, in terms of the way that... I think of, and I know we'll talk about Raya later, but I think of the the introduction to this film as like a pulling from that unicorn tapestry that's in the, the mm-hmm. uh, I, I think it's in the cloisters uptown in New York where I live, and the way that Raya does it in the end credits. We'll get there later. Anyway, I, I, there are <laughs> a lot of things I admire very deeply about this movie. Pacing and the craft of animation, not among them. <laughs> Yeah, uh, one one certainly does wonder what this movie would look like if it was made today with these same designs and just more money, more money for animation, basically more money for uh, budget. I feel like my biggest problem with this film is just kind of consistently you can see where they just couldn't afford more animation for transitions between one scene and another. Uh, and the story just jerks <laughs> wildly from one place to the next. Keith, you've, you've got a, a child. Did you try showing this to Hannah? I did not. And I kind of regret that, uh, if only because I'd love to see her reaction to something that would not have struck me as unusually stilted when I saw it as a kid, necessarily, you know, but she's used to, she's used to Ryan the Last Dragon. She's used to Pixar and such. Yeah, it was my first time watching it too, actually. And, oh, really? And yeah. And, and, you know, I tried to factor out the bosomy tree, which I found very <laughs> disturbing. So we're just going to put that to one side. No, I, I, this was my suggestion because I know how much Tasha liked it and it had the last right in the title. And so I threw it out as a possibility to pair with Ryan the Last Dragon and we went for it. And I was, I was like, I'm afraid of disappointing Tasha because I'm really, I'm not digging this movie very much. No, like the, no, the, please, by the, all the, means. Like, I mean, first I, of all, if we on this podcast, if I personally cannot stand <laughs> up to people not liking things that I like by now, uh, yeah. I, I can go on record as being the most thin skinned person in history. I really want your authentic thoughts here. I'd like to read the book because it seems like uh, yeah, the material is rich, mm-hmm. but the it was not being served by the film very well at all. I, the animation, I felt like there was a real like, at least you're trying quality <laughs> to it. Uh, and I was, as, with all respect to Jimmy Webb and the band America, um, uh, I'm not sure why they were chosen as the musicians to to score this film. I mean, it was like, I, maybe it was just a thing. Because I, I don't know if you, have you seen the movie Lady Hawk? 
<laughs> yes. Yeah, which has the, 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 the prog rock score by members of the Alan Parsons Project. It's like, why, why is this in your fantasy film? Uh, but no, it was it was um, it was an odd choice. And it was an I, era for odd choices of rock bands for fantasy films. Yeah, There's just a lot of a lot of Vangelis out in that world. I'll be honest. Jimmy Webb was fine with me, but without Glenn Campbell, why? Like, <laughs> what are we even doing? <laughs> Mm, a Glenn Campbell score. Uh, Glenn Campbell doing the songs might have been might have been something uh, I, no, I think uh, been quite different. Bad, I'll be <laughs> but I, I did find it, it. You know, the scenes went on forever, and it was so driven by dialogue when it should be driven by image and and, and you know um, atmosphere and all the things you look for in animation. Um, I don't know. I mean, I didn't hate it. Uh, I, I'm glad I watched it. It's always good to check uh, a, a landmark piece of animation in, in its way off off the list. But but um, no, I, I can't. I was a little um, put off by the whole thing. I mean, I love this film, but I love this film in the way you maybe love a, a ratty stuffed animal that you've mm. had since uh, early childhood. It's not something that you would necessarily recommend to other people as like the, the apotheosis of toy. <laughs> have seen this movie enough times and I did actually have a copy of the soundtrack. A friend of mine who was <laughs> the biggest unicorn obsessive I've ever met in my life had somehow managed to get her hands on a CD from Germany, which is the only place the full soundtrack was released. And she duped me a copy and I listened to it all the time. So a lot of this film, like rewatching it, I know the dialogue more or less by heart. I could probably mute it and recite half of this movie to you. And uh, you know what that means to me as somebody who's not a movie rewatcher. At the same time, the fact that so much of it is in my DNA means while I was watching it, I kind of got a little detached from it because I was like, I know every single beat that's going to happen next. And yet I have to sit here and and stick with it and, and keep my attention focused, even knowing there there aren't going to be any surprises. So I see all the flaws in it. I find it interesting that your problem, Keith, is more with the slow paced parts than the mm. the janky paced parts. Well, that's fair too. Because like, like whatever I've never really established. Obviously, he does some bad things, but I, but I didn't really understand why King Haggard was was the big bad in a way. You know, um, I mean, just, he's an he's unusual an unusual villain. Sure. In that, like his whole thing is just like he's sad, he's depressed. <laughs> yeah. like, like, you, you know, like it, that's a villain motivation that we never really get, at least like on the surface. Like yeah, he's that. never felt like a threat to me, though. In, in some yeah. ways, you know, you know, that was I don't. Know. I don't think he is a threat, except to the degree that he he commands this thing that is a threat. Until it's not, until somebody stands up to it. And if, if this film has a thematic underpinning, if it has a moral to it, I think it's possibly in the fact that the second the unicorn stands up to the Red Bull, it's defeated, that that's all it really takes, that it's effectively just a big bully. But watching it this time, I found myself thinking a lot about the elements of it that only really work as a fairy tale in that within the context of the book, I think it feels like it makes more thematic sense that Schmendrick's magic doesn't work until it suddenly does, that the unicorn doesn't stand up for herself mm. until she suddenly does, that I just there, there are just a lot of elements in this this movie that have that kind of fairy tale logic of things happen when it's time for them to happen and not beforehand that by modern storytelling standards just ended up feeling a little bit arbitrary, I think. So I don't know that this is necessarily a satisfying film. I'm not even sure I, I know whether it's a good film. It's just a film I have a, a real <laughs> sentimental space for in my heart. 
I think we we probably all have at least one film like that. Run childhood. That that's me with the Chipmunk Adventure, a movie I have talked to you guys about many <laughs> times that I realize is like has a lot of problems and like is a difficult one to recommend. But I you know I feel the way about that movie. I think you probably feel about this one. So nobody's read the book except me. I take it. No, and I want to hear how faithful it is to the book. So, well, I mean, people have been following me since the 80 Club days know I've had a long time obsession with books that became films and how they change in the process. And I honestly credit this movie with being one of the projects that kicked that obsession off because it was one of a very few projects where the screenwriter, at least, you know, back in the eighties where the screenwriter was the author of the book and it's incredibly faithful, except that it cuts out a good 50% of the material. You know, it keeps most of the scenes and then just like pairs them down to a few lines, but those lines are directly from the book. You know, you, you could basically take a copy of the book and delete 75% of the sentences and end up with this screenplay. Um, <laughs> but an awful lot of the the charm of the book is just is in the writing, is in like the, the lyricism of some of the odder things said at various points in this book are the lyricism of the prose in the book. And I highly recommend it. I, I still I think the novel holds up, even if the film has looked kind of quick Keith looked the other way, kind of dated. <laughs> You can hear some of it in the dialogue, too. And that's sort of one thing that I found wonderful about the film, which was that the dialogue so clearly had the book's DNA in it, that when you did get these flashes of conversation, and there's a lot of wandering around Mopoli, and there's a lot of America singing, but when you do get conversation, you can hear the literary strains of it. You know, and the, and the allusions to the medieval romance. I mean, it's kind of amazing in that way. Yeah, I agreed. Some of the things that Lear says in particular feel like the kind of poetry. There is actual poetry in the book. There are actual songs in the book that Beagle himself wrote music for. And I think the movie songs come across as a little conventional by comparison. What do you make of the anachronisms in the dialogue? Things like uh, Schmendrick referring to, to himself as the last of the red hot swamis or <laughs> Captain Cully offering him a taco. Or the every- taco, the taco just took me out. <laughs> well, th- here's the thing. The thing about the have a taco line that Uh-oh. really got me was not the fact that he was offering him a taco. It was that, like two minutes before they were talking about how they were on the third day of rat soup. So I'm like, where did these tacos come from? Is it just <laughs> like, is it magical soup that can be whatever you want it to be? Like, I, I felt like there was, I had more questions about the taco beyond just it being an anachronism. They're rat tacos, possibly. <laughs> Um, I didn't like it. I didn't like, I didn't like any of the anachronisms. <laughs> Not because I, you know, I mean, it's fine in the right in the right context, but like you know, in Aladdin, whatever, Robin Williams riffing on pop culture makes sense there. But it didn't feel right for this movie at all. I felt like you know you're supposed to be creating this enchanting enchanting fantasy world and 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 not like having like topical references, like you know, uh, the you know the references to the US Festival and and the midterm elections in 1982, way out of place. <laughs> They definitely threw me in the wa- like during the watching experience. But as I was like, kind of doing a little more reading about the film and kind of processing it and like what it was on about a, a little more like, it made a little more sense to me just in terms of making this part of the fantasy world more human, you know, like more recognizable as our world, like even though there are you know, fantasy creatures in it, and there's magic in it. It's this very sort of like, 
it's been made kind of mundane in a way that feels like it sort of tracks with what the film is. And it sounds like probably what the book more successfully is getting after in terms of being human in, in the context of a, of a fantastical story and sort of both the limitations of humanity also being kind of what make it special. So in that context, I could like kind of maybe get behind it a little more, especially knowing that a lot of it is taken from Beagle's work and that that was probably maybe intentional in that regard. But again, just like in the viewing experience, it was like, What's this butterfly on about? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the film, compared to particularly modern animated films, this film does seem to lack any kind of like moral message or message for kids. There's no, you know, stay in school kids kind of feel to the whole thing. It's just it's from an earlier school of fantasy. But what it does have is a big theme about immortality, about what it means to to find your immortality in the way other people remember you, and about whether it's worth living forever with regret if that means you have to feel something. And I find those, I, like coming from a 23-year-old writer in particular, the fear of death and mortality and the desire to some, to find some kind of recognition in the world that will stay in the world, I think is just a pretty interesting theme. It's kind of interesting how that, I think you're drawing this parallel here, so correct me if you're not, but like how that, how the seriousness of the way that the film approaches that in terms of the human's recognition of the potential for the unicorn to die uh, because they have imbued humanity upon it. And also the these snatches of human verse and human culture. The anachronisms did work for me almost always. I think the one that threw me off was take the a train um (laughs) and i don't know why aside from the word train maybe i come to this with a bit of a background in medieval and renaissance history and i i looked at the film thinking this is clearly medieval it's not renaissance they have some renaissance garb but in terms of like what is available in this very patchwork sort of world it feels like early medieval or or maybe high middle ages Uh, i'd say high middle ages but the references to even like older lore like for instance the idea that i guess even a like a a wayward like a wandering magician would get the reference to seleno the harpy who is uh does not play a significant role in but is in the aeneid i mean we're talking Mm -hmm. about a a character that that makes a major appearance in in literature like that in combination with these snatches of pub songs and shakespeare i mean none of it really it felt to me more like an experiment related to how fantasy acknowledges that time is not necessarily as linear as we perceive it and so much of this film is about the idea of immortality and the idea of mortality there's almost this kind of odd reminder undercutting everything in the context every time you get like the butterfly who was marvelous and i really want to talk about the minor characters a little bit again at some point but like the portentousness of the immortality of the unicorn versus the like cultural detritus of humanity being Mm. immortal as represented through a butterfly's wandering mind 
is just kind of an amazing parallel to me. I like never appreciated it when I was a kid, but now watching it, I was really kind of marveled at it. It, it did seem to kind of hint at a question as to what exactly immortality is even for. I think it's a big literary idea kind of crammed into a, a small and in some ways not all that literary movie. Yeah. I will say in the book, one of the sidelines, it's not a it's not a major plot, but it's there and it seems significant under the circumstances, is that Schmendrick is immortal. He had immortality placed on him as a kind of a curse by a teacher who basically wanted him to wander the earth until he finally figured out his magic. And at the end of the movie where he changes Amalthea back, like that's the moment where he figures out his magic. And one of the things he does is cast off his immortality and become mortal. And that just happens kind of between one line and the next in this very casual way. And that's always sort of fascinated me as kind of playing into the larger themes without being a big deal at the same time. I just want to say I really like John's interpretation of like all of these sort of cultural detritus of, of humanity just kind of representing a compressed timeline of, of human culture as a counterpoint to mythical immortality. That's, you know, I, I, again, I, 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 this is a movie I think I like to think about more than, than watch in the moment, maybe. Well, I think then the book may be a little bit for you. I, John, <laughs> I, I definitely want to talk about the big characters and particularly about their voice. Voices, which I think one of the stronger elements of this movie may be the casting in some cases. But you specifically want to talk about the butterfly. I've got a question for you on that. Did you look at that butterfly and think maybe it's an Asama Tezuka uh, visual reference? Like it's it just like as a little in-joke? I kind of did, especially considering, and, and not just Tezuka, but just the, the like, the visual importance of butterflies in Japanese art and in anime in general. Although I am far from a Tezuka scholar in that I'm not a huge manga reader, although I am a big anime watcher. So I don't want to like get too into it. I did kind of catch that though. What I actually obsessed about more when it came to the butterfly was the King James Bible references. <laughs> Specifically, actually, and I went down a huge rabbit hole here. I realized that very often in the Bible, when unicorns are mentioned, and they are on occasion, bulls are also mentioned. Mm -hmm. And it's not just in the one instance from Deuteronomy that the butterfly quotes here, but there is another one in Isaiah that I believe also refers to both either a shearling bull or a bullock and a unicorn in the same line. Which is bizarre, and I wonder how much Beagle was like thinking of that when he was was writing all this. We're getting far off from characters, though. I'm sorry, I'm getting lost in <laughs> no, no, medievalist I, I mean, crap. I, I definitely <laughs> want to explore the the grab a bag sensibility of this story. I think is is seen more clearly in the butterfly than any place else. Uh, you know, the the referential quality, yeah. but also just that element you were talking about of like time isn't linear, time doesn't matter, all things are kind of thrown together. The butterfly is kind of a muse. It's a a magical inciter in the hero's journey kind of sense, and it comes with this grab bag of of completely asynchronous information. And I think that that's very deliberate. I think that it's also one of the movie's weirdest choices. The movie, for the most part, is pretty representational about its art. You know, it's specifically in that very Japanese way, built around these very lush, specific, semi-realist backgrounds. And then the characters are more cartoony and simplified, but still very stylized. 
but it's still kind of representational. And then you have this butterfly that just kind of magically manifests hats to indicate what kind of character it's playing, what it's quoting in any given moment. I don't think that kind of just like mutability of form, you know, one of the things that animation does best is represented maybe anywhere else in the movie. Just very briefly, I would note that while the lush backgrounds are certainly something that you see in a lot of anime, what the opening scene in particular called to mind for me was Bambi. It is almost like Mm. scene for scene a recreation uh, down to the waterfall and the lighting uh aside from like the lighting isn't fair the waterfall though is is pretty on the (laughs) nose and the the pacing and the way that the the multiplane camera works i mean it, it reminded me very much of the intro to bambi and i felt like that was a pretty deliberate evocation although i found it strange that in a movie jam packed with references there was really no verbal reference to anything animated it was if anything it was all in the animation do you think they shot that scene first and then spent all their money and that's why the rest of the film looks the way it does <laughs> something that also happened with uh, watership down if you watch oh, that really? the very very opening of watership down is animated in a hyper realistic style well okay not the very opening scene because the opening scene is the super stylized fable but immediately after the fable, there's this short sequence that's animated in this hyper-realistic fashion that's what the creators originally kind of wanted. But apparently mm. in animation tests, they were told, yeah, when you animate the hi- the rabbits as hyper-realistic, nobody can see them. In the same way, <laughs> you know, rabbits like disappear in a, a field or a bush. We can't see the rabbits. They're not, they need to make them way cartoonier. You want to see the rabbits in Watership Down, right? That's yeah, pretty, it's, pretty key, it's, a key it's part pretty useful. Of it. I mean, imagine if yeah. you couldn't see the people or the unicorn in this movie because they just blended into the background. Imagine if you couldn't see the pirate cat. And and <laughs> this is where I want I want to know what the medieval literature reference <laughs> of the pirate cat is. I got nothing for you. John, I mean, all I can pirates, think of is like... Pirates as such are a little later than, than that, you know? <laughs> yeah, you're talking more 16th, 17th century... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> the, it really I, is a grab bag. I, I got Who bothered to fit that cat out with a pirate leg, with a with a peg leg. <laughs> My favorite thing about the pirate cat was that it purrs by going purr purr because as, as, as someone who can also not make a purring noise like i'm just like physically incapable of making that noise i really related to just having to go purr. Can you, can you roll your r's? I can't. I can't either. Uh, same thing. Huh. At the risk of too much information, the the cat's the cat's line where Molly Grew is scratching it, and it and it goes purr purr do that that to be nice. Uh, my husband and I say that to each other to this day all the time if we're scratching one of the cats, and it has the typical cat like elevator butt reaction. There's something about that cat that's just so. I'm overusing the word idiosyncratic when it comes to this movie, but this movie is just full of weird specificity. I also love the skull, the the talking skeleton, mm-hmm. like with its its cackling and its. Oh, yeah. I cannot pronounce the name of anybody. Anybody want to hazard his name? Yeah. Oh God. I, no. Oh, <laughs> go ahead. Albert Genois. Albert The better joke there would have been Rene. Is that how it's pronounced? Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, Odo on Star Trek and the voice of 100,000 animated characters. And often. And a Robert Altman regular for a good stretch as well. Yeah, and, the, and just often completely unrecognizable from role to role. Yeah. And Clayton on Benson. And the reason <laughs> that, uh, that Jeff Bridges was in this movie, which brings us finally back to the voice casting and major <laughs> actors. <laughs> okay, tell me the story because I did not run across that one in my research. 
Well, apparently Jeff Bridges actually asked for this role in that he knew that Renee was in the movie and they were friends. And he approached, I believe it was Jules Bass, and said, do you have any roles left? And they said, well, they haven't cast Lear yet. And he said, well, I want to be in the movie and I will do it, you know, at rate or whatever you're paying Renee. And they said, sold, you're hired. <laughs> Did he ask if he could sing? He certainly yeah, we gotta got talk to. about that song, y'all. <laughs> Uh, okay, so so like full disclosure, kid me thought this movie was the shiz. Uh, I thought it was you know incredibly beautiful and you know just like exactly my jam, and I still gritted my teeth every time we got to that duet. <laughs> uh, no offense to Mia Farrow and Jeff Bridges, but it's just there's a lack of diaphragm to both of their singing. They both have that kind of uh, singing, Very reedy. Yeah, yeah, singing at top of mouth uh, kind of thinness. And Pharaoh, I, I just, I'm not sure that she's quite holding the notes uh, in some of these cases. It's honestly a little grating. Can I, can I say that? Which is I had my script. Let's no. be nice about the duet, but uh, I'm not sure I can be nice about this duet. <laughs> it's kind as, of a bummer as, as because singers, her... they're both fine actors. Bridges turned out into a good singer, though. I mean, he, yeah. you know, you're talking about like, um, um, Crazy Heart? Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he developed into Pfizer. He put out some albums, uh, at least one mm -hmm. album on his own. And, and Crazy Heart, he has definitely a, a richer, maybe maybe his age. He definitely has a richer yeah. voice in Crazy Heart. Than, yeah, than he's are. definitely got that kind of smoker's bass going on. But uh, <laughs> also, those those songs just may be more in his range than this is. Um, mm. This goes to some very like high and, and thready places that I'm not sure service either of them. Mm. I think he's the maybe the weak, weakest link in this cast just because like he is Lear is kind of a, a bowl of warm milk as a character. He's not all of that interesting. And the book knows he's not all that interesting. I think the movie knows he's not all that interesting. He's the Baxter almost, you know, he's a romantic lead who doesn't have a whole lot going for him, except that he wants to be the romantic lead. I find Christopher Lee's performance like that craggy gray performance as haggard, uh, a lot more compelling. I think May Mia Farrow as the unicorn gives her a lot of soul when she's not singing. Um, for the most yeah. part, I just, I really like this cast. I do too. I mean, I think Farrow's portrayal has a sort of remarkable amount of depth in that you're playing an effete immortal character who does not understand love or regret, and yet somehow there is a soulfulness to it pretty consistently throughout the movie even in sort of moments where it is clear that there isn't any soulfulness. I mean, it, it's kind of an amazing feat in some ways. While I was doing some of my research, one of the things that I came upon was that apparently Peter Beagle did not like Alan Arkin, that he thought Alan Arkin's portrayal of Schmendrick was kind of one note, which I found kind of interesting in that I think a lot of these characters are sort of like caricatures of themselves they're kind of riffs on a particular fantasy type so to my mind criticizing alan arkin for being one note is like saying <laughs> oh my gosh i can't believe that football player played football like it, <laughs> it, i mean of course of course in that way he was one note because it was kind of expected of the role a bit of a parody of the you know snotty well-traveled you know hedge wizard Whereas Lee also gets, in some ways, the richest role, not because the role is particularly well written, because as Keith Genevieve, one of the two of you said, like, how is this a villain? <laughs> and I mean, I think it's it's a fair question, but you put that voice on 
anything related to like bitterness and sorrow and an attempt to force power through when you feel powerlessness over what really matters to you. I mean, it's kind of hard to go wrong. In fact, he demanded to voice that role in the German adaptation as well. And since he was fluent, he got the role. (laughs) Yeah, he apparently was also really dedicated to this movie. He met Beagle and was apparently really stressed about whether, and this is kind of astonishing for Christopher Lee, he, who seemed seemingly, from all of the stories I've heard, is kind of like notably persnickety and above it all when it comes to being directed. But he was very concerned uh, that Beagle liked his performance and he kept offering to redo speeches or like asking for input, which I just, I find interesting that I think it speaks to the degree to which, you know, actors are sometimes more invested in the background of a story than we necessarily credit. And I think in this case, like he apparently showed up to record the role, like with an an earmarked copy of the book that he'd been studying and was also really into it. Uh, Anything else stand out about The Last Unicorn? Uh, The voices, the cast, the performance, anything else to, to be said about the animation? Well, I I guess while we're still on on voices, although this is also just about character, like we haven't really talked at all about Molly Gru, who oh. was maybe my favorite uh, char- like character, and I think uh, one of the better voice performances. I'll just I'll just slip in right here that I am kind of in agreement with Beagle uh, when it comes to Arkin. It just kind of um, feels a little less dynamic than uh, some of the other voice performances, just in in terms of like having levels that I expect in in the animated film. But I think that um, Tammy Grimes as Molly Grew is just kind of giving this sort of energy that I expect in an animated uh, voice performance. And like, yeah, I, I think uh, she she's a real standout for me, as is Angela Lansbury and her, you know, but I mean, when is Angela Lansbury not a, a standout? <laughs> but, you know, in a very uh, short and odd role as uh, Mommy Fortuna, uh, you know, she she stood out as well. Yeah, Mommy Fortuna is one of my favorite elements of the book. And I really like her design here uh, with the, the wild. So grotesque. Yeah, the, the really improbable <laughs> hat. Um, it seems like about eight hats in a tree. Tommy Gr- Tammy Grimes' performance, I think, is is spectacular. But also, Molly Grew may be just one of my favorite characters in fantasy. You know, this older woman who's clearly seen a lot and become jaded and cynical and who becomes new when she meets the unicorn, but mm-hmm. first has to go through a period of, of just fury at her. You know, yeah, the- that scene is... I think that was a scene that like kind of made me sit up a little straighter, you you know, like when she was yelling at the unicorn, like, why didn't you come to me when I was young? Yeah, when I was new. That's like, like, that's kind of hard. Yeah, it is. It's heartbreaking. And the unicorn doesn't say a word. The whole time Molly grew, you know, lets out all of her frustration and her regret, which the unicorn at this point in the movie cannot understand, and then forgives the unicorn as if the unicorn asked to be forgiven, which of course she did not. And not a word. It's just a whole like emotional arc in the span of 45 seconds on. It's really kind of amazing. And then you immediately drop into Schmendrick trying to gatekeep the unicorn. I just I love that element of it. Like he's he's already decided that the unicorn kind of belongs to him and that Molly Grew is some kind of like fake geek fake unicorn geek girl who doesn't have any right to access to her. And just the degree to which Molly laughs that off and the unicorn also laughs it off literally. And they they just look at him like what the hell I think is 
just delicious. Just honestly kind of delicious. <laughs> as much as I have problems with the overall pacing of this film, of the transitions mostly, the individual scenes, I think, some of them mm. are just beautiful little interactions. I kind of have the same feeling about the interaction with Haggard and Mafia on the roof, where he's... She has degenerated to the point where she's just a, a shallow Disney princess, where she's in love and that's all that exists of her anymore. And he's experiencing this like huge, profound thing that he's trying to both share with her and attack her with. And she's just completely not there for it. I find that exchange pretty fascinating. He does his big villain reveal of like, yes, I did it. And here's why I did it. And here's how I did it. And there, there's the evidence <laughs> of it. And she's just like, what? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I it's just it's a, such such an unconventional moment. A lot of those, a lot of those in this movie, and it, and it is one that you know, as we've been talking about it for close to an hour now. I'm like, yeah, like there is a lot that's really, really interesting about this movie, and I can absolutely see why it stuck with you, Tasha, and why it stuck with with so many people. But yeah, it's a it's a weird one. So yeah, I think- it just came in an era when there wasn't anything like it. Right. Yeah. Well, in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no, right? Because, like, again, you have The Secret of Nim, you have The Black Cauldron. Like, there are these dark fantasy films adapted from literature of the same general vein in this period. It's just that they're all either cult classics or hit or miss or both. Mm -hmm. And I do think in some ways, like, and I'm sure we'll get to this more when we talk about Raya the Last Dragon, films can't be this patient anymore, And they also can't be this quirky, really, in terms of like... So, for example, some of the side characters in this film, they really feel like stand-up bits. They don't feel like, oh, here is Disney's plug-and-play X, Y, or Z character to put into X, Y, or Z role for X, Y, or Z plot point in this film because Disney's formula is so exactly what it is. This is adapted from a book by a studio that had adapted other fantasies before, but like they weren't going to make, they may have made this look like Lord of the Rings, but they couldn't make a book by Peter S. Beagle into a book by J.R.R. Tolkien. They just couldn't do it. So the the same beats were never going to happen here. And so what you kind of get is a movie that because they cut so much of the plot out or so much of the, the like world out in order to move the movie forward, and Tasha, you could speak more to this, I'm sure, because you've actually read the book. The characters and their weirdness and their their idiosyncrasy are, are really what stands. And the little character moments, whether they be humorous, like the skull going on about wine, or very emotionally resonant, like when you finally get an understanding of why Haggard is so bitter. I mean, that's what kind of sticks, even more than the plot. Yeah, there's a ton more of that in the book, and I'm not going to go deeply into it because I'd rather people just read it for themselves. So (laughs) speaking of moving forward, which you mentioned, we should probably move forward with this. We'll be back with more about The Last Unicorn in our next episode. But for now, we're going to take some feedback. time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. Let's start with a voicemail from Rob about a keyword we didn't use during our pairing of Minari and Jean de Florette. Hey, Next Picture Show. This is Rob from Boston calling to talk about Jean de Florette. I'm so happy that you discussed this movie on your recent episode. 
I think it's one of the most woefully underseen and under-discussed movies of all time. I saw it in college, and it's stayed with me um, ever since. And in fact, I own a DVD copy of Madonna the Spring, so if anyone's looking for it, um, I've got you covered. Um, I really, really enjoyed your discussion. Um, the one thing I wanted to add was the one word I didn't hear mentioned, and I thought I would, is stable. That's the word I'm most associated with the movie. You know, it's um, almost mythical in its narrative simplicity, but it invokes deep truths about human nature. It looks so simple on the surface, but it absolutely is not. And I really haven't seen too many movies like this. It makes it very unique and memorable. Um, and I thought about it recently when watching last year's Honeyland, which to me presented, you know, a similar agrarian fable with morals about how we treat the land and each other, um, albeit in documentary form. Anyway, thanks so much. Really enjoy your show. Keep up the good work. Well, in keeping with Jean de Florette being underseen and underdiscussed, Genevieve and John haven't seen it, so I uh, won't be discussing <laughs> it. But uh, just really in brief, this did really head home for me. You're right. It is a fable. It is kind of a fairy tale. I mean, it's a, it's a morality tale. I don't think it plays entirely like a fable, though, unless you factor in Man in the Spring, which we weren't really discussing. Because once you do, it becomes... I think both a story that goes further into kind of magical psychology, particularly given what happens to Eugelin, and that pays off in a very fairy tale kind of way. Keith, did you think of Shonda Florette as a fable? No, not really, but it makes that really makes sense to me um, for all the reasons that you mentioned as well. I think it is a point where, as, as much as that worked talking about it in con- uh, connection with Minari, it really it is a, it is the, both films form a complete story. So, um, so yeah, it's it's good to bring the second half in to talk about that. Yeah, it's very nice of Rob to invite everybody over to his house to watch that yeah, movie. Yeah, go to Rob's house. It's it's strange that he doesn't <laughs> tell us exactly where that house is, but I know I'm like inviting everybody to a viewing party at his place. <laughs> Um, We still have a backlog of feedback about Promising Young Woman and American Psycho that we should get to someday. But with a guest in the house, we kind of wanted to take up a more general discussion question. So we've got this one from listener Patrick Holt. Genevieve, can you read this for us? Sure. Patrick writes, I've picked up on a pattern among the several film podcasts I listen to, which is that sooner or later, a host will make the comment that a given movie would have made more sense as a TV miniseries. I don't disagree per se, and notably the movies in question are always from the 1990s or earlier, that is, before so-called prestige television made it clear that TV doesn't mean poor quality. But it does raise questions about the differences between these two kinds of moving pictures. It's muddied further by the likes of Small Axe, The Hateful Eight's episodic extended version, and even Top of the Lake's bizarrely varied modes of distribution. But these aren't the first works to reveal the often arbitrary distinction between movies and TV shows. So my question for the panel is, do you believe there's an essential difference between television and cinema? In either way, what is it about cinema that excites and engages you in a deeper or at least different way than television? So I think we're going to need like another hour or so of the podcast (laughs) to unpack this. It's a a big conversation. Yeah. It's a big conversation. And and it's in some ways... You know, there, there is, there's no way you're going to arrive at an answer for this. But I do remember when I worked at Uproxx, uh, I was uh, editor of Alan Sepinwall, who's now TV critic at Rolling Stone, TV critic at other places before that, uh, one, of, one of the greats. Uh, but you know, I had a weekly conversation back and forth about Twin Peaks. And at mm. some point, I came to realize, because, you know, I, I love television. I watch a lot of TV, always have. Uh, but I'm 
fundamentally a movie person. It's what it comes down to. It's in my heart of hearts, as much as I, as much as I feel like I can engage with television as well. And obviously, Alan's fundamentally a, a TV person. And it came to realize that we were wanting very different things from Twin Peaks. Because, like for me, it was like, wow, that was it was the way that was shot, the the creepiness of it, the visuals. Uh, and and Alan wanted story, you know. And like I, I feel like Twin Peaks delivered both for me. But the things that frustrated him about it did not frustrate me because I think Lynch, David Lynch, is really is at heart a movie guy too, uh, is, is that he wants to bring to even his TV projects the things that make to me and or to a lot of people who love movies, uh, yeah, make, make movies interesting. And, and that has a lot more to do with, with you know, mood and, and atmosphere and uh, visuals and, and just, you know, movie stuff you know <laughs> um as much as you know it's i think you can have a great movie that's not necessarily a wonderfully told story uh i don't know that that works the same as television so if i had to come if i had to like if you're asking me what to simplify a very complicated um question i think that would be kind of be what i would point to john oh, what a question <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, I find myself at moments thinking that uh, a given movie should have more space. But generally, I think what we're really talking about is, I mean, uh, saying that a, a movie should be television or a television miniseries isn't just saying it needs more time. It also is saying it needs the seriality. Because if all you're saying is more time or the limits of the human attention span require that it be separated into four to five pieces in order for it to be however long. I mean, I understand that, but let me back up for a second. So one of the things that has frustrated me very greatly over the past many years it has been the existence of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I'm sure <laughs> that this is just going to open a can of worms that we cannot close, so I'm not going to get too into it. Oh, we, we've had that can open for many years yeah, on this that's, podcast. That's just a, just a perpetually open around. can. Yeah. <laughs> Spilling worms all over this podcast. I'll bet. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, a, it's an infinite stone or something. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I grew up loving animated television. It was what brought me into almost all of the fandoms or obsessions that I got to in in so many different other visual worlds. Books stayed kind of on their own for me, but I didn't get into superheroes until I watched Batman the Animated Series and X-Men the Animated Series. And one of the things that I realized about something like Batman the Animated Series or X-Men the Animated Series is that it mimicked and worked around the seriality of the comics themselves in that they were adapting a serial medium to a serial medium. And I thought that that was a really smart way of going about things. The Marvel Cinematic Universe, for instance, manufactures seriality in a medium that is kind of tedious when you try to make it serial. Like, I just don't have the time for all that crap. I, and, and I don't think that the way that they are necessarily adapted is as effective. So this is kind of like reverse answering this question. At the same time, like, it also, I think, depends on what the source material is or what the story is you're trying to tell. So when you first mentioned that we were going to t be talking about this, Tasha, what I, what I kind of thought was two Tommy Lee Jones projects. One is his ABC 1990 miniseries, Lonesome Dove, which I always reflexively call a movie, because to my mind, <laughs> it's a six-hour movie. And No Country for Old Men, which is another Western of a very different kind by a very different director, 
with a very different cast and a very different tone that is also pretty long, but works exactly as is. I think it's just kind of hard to make a generalization about any of this. Uh, <laughs> I mean, honestly, but I do think that the question is both about length and how the story is told or if the story is central, like how central seriality and narrative linear storytelling is to what we're even talking about. But then you have someone like Lynch blow the, never mind. I, I can't answer this question. <laughs> <laughs> I can answer this question um, by, by going as simple and uh, simplified as possible. When I say something should have been television or that television should have been a movie, I am just talking about length. I think that's a really interesting point about seriality, about pacing in particular, about the, the depth that you're telling the story at. But for me, if I say this should have been television, I probably just mean there's a whole lot of unused story potential that's not just, oh, well, this could have been longer, but this should have been longer to tell the story that you're specifically trying to tell. And not to get too far ahead of yourself, but the last movie that I thought that about was Raya and the Last Dragon. You have this character that's going from culture to culture to culture uh, and encountering them in extreme brief. Like the differences between the cultures and the characters she meets there are meant to be very important to the story, but we don't have enough time to explore what they are, really. And so everything ends up being very simplified and iconic. But you have almost the exact same story taking place in Avatar The Last Airbender, the animated series, over the course of three seasons, where every location that our little traveling group goes to so the main character can get a power up and they can acquire a new traveling companion as they as they do in Raya, every one of those places has personal character and, and depth and its own story to tell. So when I look at the two of those side by side and I see basically the same, the exact same story being told in one case as a movie and in one case as a TV series, kind of what I, I'm thinking is there's just an untapped potential for exploration and world building that isn't serviced by the speed of a movie. Uh, the question here in part is, is there something about cinema that excites and engages you in a different way than television? And I would say maybe that's the the one and done factor. You know, the ability in the same way reading a short story is a different experience from reading a novel. The ability to tell a single story in a, a concise and directed way in many cases in a movie is often kind of exciting. And that's why something like Small Axe or uh, the Marvel movies again, muddies the water. I'm not sure how much cinema or television is is bolstered by it being a giant sprawling franchise where no story is about itself. It's really just about setting up the next thing. I'm kind of glad that it's out there because I think we need the one to illustrate what it looks like and for variety's sake. But I'm also kind of glad that the umpty jillion copycat cinematic universes all failed because I would not want to, all entertainment to be done in that model. You know which one didn't? Uh, I did not to get too sidetracked, but you know what? Never people never think of it, but the other successful cinematic universe is the Conjuring universe for some reason. But every entry is they're all connected. Every entry works, as, and every entry is, has been successful. And that's what I had to say about the Conjuring universe. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't kept up on all of the side ones, just because in part I'm so uninterested in, I guess, the the further adventures of Annabelle the doll. But. Uh, they they are very popular uh, in a in a continuum, and there is something to be said for stories that speak to each other, or that allow a little more space. I, I am a fan of long term 
storytelling. But I don't know. The the both have their disadvantages. You know, the the brevity of film can be a disadvantage. The lack of interiority of film can be a disadvantage. If you want to tell a, a richer and more complicated story about characters, the artificiality of dividing television up into these chunks uh, can be a real disadvantage, you know? But they're, they're both wonderful, and we love them both. <laughs> yeah, they're both wonderful in their own way. They're both limited in their own way. They're both moving in their own way. And boy, the differences between them sure are, in fact, getting, uh, getting kind of melty around the edges. Hmm. Well, we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response at a future episode. To reach us, leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll look at the much bigger journeys and more complicated storytelling of Raya and the Last Dragon. Look for that episode next Tuesday, or you can subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. If you want to hear it without ads, and while surrounded by extra Next Picture Show written and recorded content, come support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow, find us at nextpictureshow.net, and follow us at Twitter at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, anyone want to help me do a little personal shopping for a harpy? That lady could really use a good support bra. lost at sea and never seen again